This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, The Majority Report, The Tom Hartman Program, The Progressive Magazine, Lawyers and Company, NPR, and The Young Turks. And a quick thought that one doesn't have to be a racist to be okay with voter suppression, but it sure helps. After the recent Supreme Court voting rights decision, statewide voter ID laws are back up for discussion. So, too, unfortunately, is the media habit of presenting legitimate claims that the laws suppress voter turnout alongside claims that the laws stop voter fraud, a problem that doesn't actually exist. Here's how an Associated Press story about the court hearings over Pennsylvania's ID law put it. Quote, Critics derided the law as a cynical GOP effort to discourage young adults, minorities, the elderly, the poor, and the disabled from going to the polls. Republicans said most Pennsylvanians have driver's licenses to use as photo IDs and claimed that the law would discourage voter fraud. Close quote. One side says X, the other says Y. It would be responsible and entirely accurate to point out that the problem of fraud has never been documented. Journalists are supposed to tell us when a source is not telling the truth. But these days, that's seen as taking sides and frowned upon by professionals who make better stenographers than journalists. Shock, reverse shock. Look what the other guy feel the stumble through my sail. Follow someone else's trip. Camera A, camera B. In your home on your TV. Look me up, look in my eyes. Dialect, do I surprise you? Watch me blush, bling, sing. Trust in me so you don't have to think. Shock, reverse shock. Look what the other guy. Shock, reverse shock. Look what the other guy. Can As you know, the Republican Supreme Court, <clears throat> Republican-dominated Supreme Court, uh, gutted the Voting Rights Act uh, a couple of weeks ago in, um, in what some have described as analogous to deciding that um, we had a bad intersection where accidents were happening. We put up um, uh, stoplights and uh, motion-activated cameras to catch license plate numbers that uh, come through and don't stop. And since we have now gotten rid of all the traffic accidents there, we should get rid of those things. And as soon as uh, the Voting Rights Act was struck down, we had uh, half a dozen states across the country ramping up and reinstituting their voting uh, laws, which were designed to suppress the vote of generally minorities, more generally Democrats, but, but to a large extent minorities. Uh, and there is now a, uh, a trial in Pennsylvania over the constitutionality of the state's voter identification law a, uh, the, the state constitutionality of the state's voter identification law. The other day, um, two days ago, Bernard Siskin, a statistical expert who has been a, a, a consultant for a variety of government agencies and companies, including the FBI, testified that about 511 
thousand registered voters in Pennsylvania lack the state issue IDs required at the polls under the law. He also said the law disproportionately affects Democrats and members of minority groups. They are three times as likely as Republicans, Democrats are, and minorities about twice as likely as whites to lack the valid ID needed. This is relevant because uh, the state's constitution is, uh, would prohibit a law that disenfranchises large number of voters. On top of that, and just if you wanted to know the agenda behind this, we already know that a Pennsylvania a state lawmaker back in the day said that Pennsylvania was going to go to, my, uh, go to uh, Mitt Romney because we were able to pass voter ID law. We now have a Republican representative after the election bragging about this fact in regards to a question about voter ID. Listen to it now. Do you think all the attention drawn to voter ID affected last year's elections? Uh, yeah, I think a little bit. I think we probably had a better election. Think about this. Uh, we cut Obama by 5%, uh, which was big. You know, a lot of people lost sight of that. He, he won. He beat McCain by 10%. He only beat uh, Romney by 5%. I think that probably voter Wait a ID second. Stop this. Play it again. Listen to the question. Do you think all the attention drawn to voter ID affected last year's elections? Uh, yeah, I think a little bit. I think we probably had a better election. Think about this. Uh, we cut Obama by 5%, uh, which was big. You know, a lot of people lost sight of that. He, he won. He beat McCain by 10%. He only beat uh, Romney by 5%. I think that probably photo ID had a, a helped a bit in that. So the question is, do you think that all the attention about your attempts to suppress voting in Pennsylvania drove up the rate of participation? And he, no, he doesn't even hear the question. All he does is say he thinks he's in some type of, uh, you know, meeting with donors. No, voter ID was successful for us. We were able to cut Obama's margin, and it, he was right. In, uh, in, in uh, 08, Obama won by 10 points and five points in 2012 in Pennsylvania. So he was right. They were able to keep people away from the polls. Not the response you'd expect. Well, what we really did and what was more important is that we maintained the integrity of our election because of our bullshit talking points about uh, what this is supposed to be preventing. This is just grotesque. It's grotesque. In fact, I don't know how this isn't admitted into this court case the next day. They even admit that it suppressed vo voter turnout. Unbelievable. Really unbelievable. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. 
It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. Old people are voting. Oh my God, we can't have that. Old people voting? Old people are on Social Security and Medicare. Social Security and Medicare were Democratic plans that were called socialism and communism, respectively, by Herbert Hoover and Ronald Reagan, Republicans. And the Republicans have been trying to destroy since they were passed in 1935 and 1965. So old people shouldn't be allowed to vote. Governor Pat McCrory of North Carolina just signed the bill yesterday afternoon. Didn't have a ceremony, didn't invite the press in, he just did it. Signed the, press, signed the bill, then he released a little YouTube video. Yeah, we're trying to protect the vote. So... You know, if you're elderly and your driver's license is expired and you threw it away or you've lost it or whatever, or you've moved and it's not your address anymore, forget about trying to vote. Ain't going to happen. Black people voting. African Americans. Oh, my God, we can't have African Americans vote. They tend to vote Democratic. The Democrats, after all, championed the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act of 1964 and 65. We can't, you know, can't have African Americans voting. Seventy percent of the African Americans in North Carolina voted on a day other than Tuesday, other than Election Day. In the last two elections, seven zero seventy percent. The majority of them voted on Sunday, the Sunday right before the election. In fact, they call, there's, a, there's a name for it. It comes out of the black churches. It's souls to the polls. The souls to the polls program is you go to church, hear an inspiring sermon, sing, have, have cake and cookies afterwards or something to eat, and then you all drive down to the post office or down to the uh, voting, to the polls, the voting station, and you vote. Might be the post office in some cases. So, Governor McCrory in North Carolina and the Republicans, they said, okay, early voting is fine the week before the election, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, but poor people, working poor people, and particularly African Americans with the whole souls to the polls thing, they like to vote on Saturdays and Sundays. So, we're going to make early voting illegal on Saturday, Sunday, and Monday before the election. Why are you doing this, people say? Well, they're saying, we're trying to prevent voter fraud. Oh, I see. People who vote on Sundays are fraudulent. People who vote on Tuesdays aren't. Well, no, people who vote on Tuesdays are people who can get the day off work without having to lose a day's paycheck. And, I mean, you know, there are some people who are paid by the hour who will still take off Tuesday to vote, if that's the only choice. 
So for them to really discourage them, we're going to cut the number of voting machines, we're going to reconsolidate the precincts, we're going to make sure that their line is 10 hours long. You're not going to get a paycheck at all for that Tuesday. Oh, you want to vote on Saturdays? Tough. It's illegal now. Sunday? Ha! Students. Can't have students voting. Students, they're, you know, they haven't made, you know, they haven't had their first job yet. They don't own a car. Why have a driver's license? They got a student ID. Bars will accept a student ID as, as identification, but not voting. No siree, Bob. Used to be you could vote with your student ID. No more. Used to be that there were advanced voter registration programs run by the schools all across North Carolina where if you were 16 or 17 years old, you were a junior, senior in high school, they would sign you up in the school to vote if the next election happened when you had turned 18. So election day comes around, hey, you turned 18 four days before, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to register a year in advance, all that kind of nonsense. You can just show up and vote. No, can't have that. Students might vote as Democrats. So Governor McCrory and the Republicans in North Carolina just outlawed that. When the Supreme Court tore the heart out of the Voting Rights Act in June, it acted like racism was a thing of the past and that a new South had fully dawned. But in the last two months, it's the old South that has risen over the horizon. Barely had the Supreme Court announced its decision when many states that had been covered by the terms of the Voting Rights Act set out immediately to erect obstacles on the path to the voting booth. Texas was the first to come forward with a harsh voter ID law. Florida is in the midst of purging its voter rolls right now like it did in the stolen election of 2000. And just this week, the governor of North Carolina signed a voter ID bill that requires citizens to present a government-issued ID, and it cuts early voting days, stops same-day registration, ends straight-ticket party voting, and gives poll watchers new powers for challenging voters. This is all about disenfranchising minority voters and making it harder for Democrats to get their people counted. Fortunately, the North Carolina law is being challenged by the NAACP on behalf of a 92-year-old African-American woman who stands to lose her right to vote after 70 years. It's also being challenged by the ACLU. And Hillary Clinton, warming up for 2016, denounced what she called an unseemly rush to make it harder for millions of our fellow Americans to vote. Hillary's right, but it's more than unseemly. It's unforgivable. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it.
One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions, so if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content, including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. I worked for LBJ, and I was there when not long after peaceful protesters in Selma, Alabama, had been ruthlessly beaten by white thugs in official uniforms. The president went before a joint session of Congress and turned the anthem of the civil rights movement into a hymn of freedom for all. What happened in Selma is part of a far larger movement which reaches into every section and state of America. It is the effort of American Negroes to secure for themselves the full blessings of American life. Their cause must be our cause too. Because it's not just Negroes, but really it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And we shall overcome. The Voting Rights Act passed the Senate by a bipartisan vote of 77 to 19. Yes, 77 to 19. But even so, many conservatives opposed it then and have tried ever since to nullify it. Late last month, they succeeded. The Supreme Court's five conservative justices declared the key provision of the act outdated. Nine states, with a pattern of denying minorities the right to vote, most of them former members of the Confederacy, no longer have to get federal approval to change their voting procedures in any way. Several of those states immediately set out to implement restrictive new voting laws that before the ruling would have been found discriminatory. By coincidence, the very weekend before the Supreme Court's decision disemboweled that historic legislation, I had finished reading a masterful new account of the events leading up to its passage. Bending toward justice, the Voting Rights Act and the transformation of American democracy. You will not find in one volume a more compelling story of the heroic men and women who struggle for the right to vote, or a more cinematic rendering of the political battle to enact the law, or a more succinct telling of the long campaign to subvert it. The author is with me now. Gary May is a professor of history at the University of Delaware and winner of the Alan Nevins Prize from the Society of American Historians. Welcome. Thank you very much. What were you thinking as the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act? I thought first of the people you mentioned, the, uh, the, the people who've been forgotten by history, who for decades uh, had been risking everything, their, their homes, their jobs, and, and their lives. And I thought, here are these 
five men, uh, men of privilege, men who'd served as U.S. attorneys, uh, judges, um, Thomas, administrator. Um, how could they possibly understand the world of those men and women who fought and died for the Voting Rights Act? They don't seem to understand it at all. They think it's all past. By coincidence, I had just recently seen C.T. Vivian. He was one of Martin Luther King's top aides leading those demonstrators trying to uh, vote in Selma mm -hmm. when the infamous Sheriff Jim Clark mm -hmm. wouldn't let them pass. Here's the scene. You are breaking the injunction by not allowing these people to come inside this courthouse and wait. Well, this courthouse does not belong to Sheriff Clark. This courthouse belongs to the people of Dallas County, and these are the people of Dallas County, and they have come to register. And you know this within your own heart, Sheriff Clark. You are not as evil a man as you act. You know in your heart what is right. What you're really trying to do is intimidate these people and by making them stand in the raid, keep them from registering to vote. And this, this is a kind of violation of the Constitution, the violation of the court order, the violation of decent citizenship. You can turn your back on me, but you cannot turn your back upon the idea of justice. You can turn your back now and you can keep the club in your hand, but you cannot beat down justice. And we will register to vote because as citizens of these United States, we have the right to do it. I'm looking down the line, seeing all the people who've been in jail for felonies. That's what I'm looking Precisely at. Precisely right. And if, they, and if they're not fit to vote, you'll be able to find that out. But you'll not know it until they're, until they're on the registrar. And many of those have a felony action because Sheriff Clark made them a felony action, not because they were rightfully that was an extraordinarily important moment. A few nights later, Reverend Vivian was asked to um, preach at a church in Marion, Alabama, not too far from Selma. And um, he did that, and the parishioners were going to march on the jail afterwards where one of their colleagues had been un unfairly imprisoned. Um, Reverend Vivian left. He didn't join that march. And what happened was that uh, the parishioners came outside, the demonstrators came outside to face uh, uh, almost a mob of uh, Alabama police, local uh, police. Jim Clark was there as well. And uh, in, in the melee that followed, a young civil rights leader named Jimmy Lee Jackson was killed by an Alabama state trooper while he was trying to protect his mother and grandfather from um, a beating. And it's thought that Clark and the others were there to get Vivian for that encounter that they had. And of course, the, the Marion people were so distraught over Jimmy Lee Jackson's death that, that uh, one of them said, let's take his coffin and, and to George Wallace in, in Montgomery, put it on the Capitol steps. And from that came the idea of this march from Selma to Montgomery. And so there was a debate in, in King's Circle. Um, should they go forward, uh, they might uh, encounter again what, what had been uh, encountered in, in Marion. And uh, King 
King's advisors were divided. Some said, yes, let's go forward. King himself was uncertain. As you know and write about, President Johnson didn't want that march to happen either. Now, of course, he changed his mind later, and when Lyndon Johnson changed his mind, he came out the cross of a charging bear and a crafty fox. But at the moment, he was doing what he could to prevent that march from happening. Mm -hmm. Which is another irony, isn't it? Because here is the event uh, that almost never took place. And the event that Lyndon Johnson wanted stopped, the event that Martin Luther King uh, initially had uh, opposed. Um, and of course, it turns everything around. And as you know, it came to be called Bloody Sunday. Mm -hmm. To be detrimental to your safety, to continue this march, and I'm saying that this is an unlawful assembly, you have to disperse your orders to disperse, go home, or go to your church. This march will not continue. It, it was so terrible. Uh, one person, we heard a person calling for a doctor. Someone called for uh, an ambulance to, to, to Sheriff Clark, and Sheriff Clark replied, let the buzzards eat them. Uh, and again, what was so extraordinary was that it was captured on film, and that proved to be absolutely critical. Journalists, print journalists, and uh, uh, photographers were there. They got their cameramen. They got the film back to New York very quickly. And ABC was the first to break the news by interrupting the movie of the week, which, uh, again, an, an amazing coincidence, was Judgment Nuremberg, the 1961 film about the Nazi war trials. And people were stunned. They, they just watched the footage. There was no narration. Uh, and they, was this America? I mean, they, they couldn't believe it. They dropped everything uh, to join King's campaign. Others besieged Lyndon Johnson oh, yeah. in the White House, sat in, uh, in, in a group of them in the White House. What do you, what do these unanticipated, unexpected, unintended consequences of the convergence of such forces, what do they tell you about history, how it gets made? That it's primarily an accident. Uh, sometimes we see this story as, as one of Martin Luther King and Lyndon Johnson. They get together and we have the Voting Rights Act. But of course it's a much larger story and it's a, it's a perfect example of the value of collective change to bring about uh, uh, progress in, in this country. People getting together um, and being committed and willing to risk their very lives. Uh, to bring something that the country desperately needs it. But it's clear to me that if there hadn't been this steady witness and martyrdom of these young men and women in the South and a progressive president, the result wouldn't have been the same. If you'd not had the pressure from below and if you'd had a conservative uh, president, history wouldn't have come the way it has come to us. Yes. And, and once Johnson decided that that bill was going to go to the Congress, he was going to give that great address. He felt liberated. The pot inside you can reach. I'm afraid this way it's gonna be. There's a part of you that wants to fight. But I never really had the appetite. I feel my feelings won't speak. 
This week, North Carolina adopted new rules for elections. The state now requires a photo ID to vote, and early voting will be shortened by one week. Those measures come on the heels of the Supreme Court's ruling that invalidated a key provision of the Voting Rights Act. Critics say the new rules reverse crucial reforms. Those reforms, they say, help to protect the rights of African Americans, young people, and the poor. NPR's Elsa Chang went to North Carolina to explore the new law's possible effects. Sometimes you can tell how hard voting can be just by looking at a place. Drive through a rural pocket of northeastern North Carolina called Bertie County, and all you'll see for miles and miles are tobacco and soybean fields. You'll see large families crammed into small trailer homes propped up on cinder blocks, and you'll see not many of those homes have cars sitting outside. Many of these persons don't have cars; they can't afford、uh, automobiles. So years ago, Reverend Vonner Horton and her church used the early voting system to make sure as many people as possible could vote. Here's what they do: they send vans across the county, door to door, to pick people up and take them to the polls. But they're always short on time. Do the math, she says. One church van holds about ten people. Gathering them up can take more than an hour. Then you got to drive to different polling places, long distances apart. Repeat all of this a few more times in one day, and you've only got 50 ballots in the box. And this new law has now cut early voting from 17 days to 10. Losing that week is also going to、uh, put challenges on us on how we're going to move across a county that's two hours wide to get people to vote and vote. There's a big demand to vote early in Bertie County. Last year, about six. Thousand people did it. More than half of all voters here. And even if all those voters did get back to polling places again, there's another hurdle with the new rules. You need a government-issued photo ID to vote in person. A lot of residents applaud this new rule requiring picture IDs, like Mac Lawrence. He's supervising big machines cropping leaves in his tobacco field. I think there's a lot of folks voting more than one place. If if you can't prove who you are, then you ought not be able to vote. Actually, evidence of voter fraud in North Carolina is pretty minimal. The State Board of Elections has reported only two cases of voter impersonation fraud in the last ten years. Still, Lawrence says presenting an ID is hardly a burden. I don't know a person in Bertie County that doesn't have an ID card or some type of another. Well, more than 300,000 registered voters in North Carolina lack either a driver's license or a state ID. That's what records from the State Board of Elections show. And in Bertie County, according to a voting rights group, almost 10% of all voters fall into that category. Most of them poor African Americans. I met some of them at a local church. My name is Teresa Valentine. And Teresa, do you have a state ID or、no. a driver's license? No. My name is Sudi Sutton. I don't have a driving license or a state ID card. Then I caught Eddie Winborn pulling weeds outside his trailer home. He let his driver's license expire when he was in his forties. Now he's thumbing through his wallet to look for some other ID. Got one there. Well, that's your、sure. Medicare card. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anything with your picture on it? No, don't have nothing. That's my picture on it. Many residents showed me photo identification for food stamps, but that ID doesn't qualify under the new law. Supporters of the legislation say even if you don't have a valid photo ID, you can still vote absentee. 
but you need two witnesses to sign your ballot, and you have to fill out a county elections form. That might not sound like a big deal, but Reverend Horton says that can be a real obstacle for poor people. You're talking about voters who don't have internet access in their homes, who will need handholding to get a ballot. She remembers a large tornado that hit two years ago. We had people from storms, these same seniors, that had damages and all, and could apply for FEMA, but because they could not read or write, they didn't want to be bothered with the application process. So Horton says she expects a lot of people just won't bother to vote absentee, and they certainly won't bother applying for a North Carolina state ID just to vote. So they might never cast a ballot again. Voting rights advocates have worked more than 10 years fighting for reforms, like longer early voting periods, same-day registration, and pre-registration of 17-year-olds. All of that vanished this week. Bob Phillips of Common Cause says he finds it astonishing how far backwards North Carolina has gone with this new law. It's interesting how in 2008 we led the country in having the largest percentage increase in voter turnout. Interesting that when we have a record turnout, a record turnout of young people, a record turnout of African Americans, suddenly we are passing laws that are hitting harder those populations. Why is that? Supporters of the legislation, like Republican State Senator Bob Rucho, say such talk is nothing more than what he calls liberal rhetoric from people who don't care about voter fraud. When changes are made and people are so adamantly opposed to those changes, in my judgment, they're trying to hide something, or they're trying—they're having something taken away from them, in essence, that may allow them to cheat. These accusations, this kind of suspicion, gives some voters in North Carolina the unsettling feeling that history is repeating itself. Telling Alberta Curry, the great granddaughter of a slave, that she's no longer welcome at a polling place, takes her back to an ugly time in North Carolina, a time she thought had disappeared. She remembers voting in 1956 in Robeson County, right when she became eligible to vote, because she was black. She had to spend all day at the polling place. The white people went ahead of us. That made the black people be last. And if we got home at dusk dark, we was home at dusk dark. We wasn't home at light. Curry has consistently voted at polling places ever since that first time, but now she won't be able to. She can't get a state photo ID without a birth certificate. She doesn't have one because she was born with a midwife on a farm. Curry says she's endured plenty of racism in her rural corner of the South, like the time she was hired to clean a high school and white students splashed cans of urine on her when she walked home from work. The new voting law in North Carolina. Means Alberta Curry will now have to vote absentee, but she says that's not really voting. You need to show up in person to vote with dignity. I want to see my vote counted. Let me be there. I want to be there. I want to see that. Curry has joined a lawsuit against the state, hoping to stop the new law from going into effect, because she says missing a day at the polling place is like missing church. It's as if there's an empty spot inside yourself. You feel all day long. Elsa Chang, NPR News.
I was standing off to the right below the president on the floor of the House, and I could look right into the eyes of senators and, and representatives as clearly as I can look and as closely as I can look into your eyes. I mean, they had never heard a president of the United States say that anywhere. And to say it on the dais and the rostrum there in the House chamber before the assembled Congress, I mean, at first they could not believe what they had heard. Every device of which human ingenuity is capable has been used to deny this right. The Negro citizen may go to register only to be told that the day is wrong or the hour is late or the official in charge is absent. And if he persists, and if he manages to present himself to the registrar, he may be disqualified because he did not spell out his middle name or because he abbreviated a word on the application. And if he manages to fill out an application, he is given a test. The registrar is the sole judge of whether he passes this test. He may be asked to recite the entire Constitution or explain the most complex provisions of state law. And even a college degree cannot be used to prove that he can read and write. For the fact is that the only way to pass these barriers is to show a white skin. No law that we now have on the books, and I have helped to put three of them there, can can ensure the right to vote when local officials are determined to deny it. The speech written by my colleague, gifted young man, 33 at the time, I believe, Richard Goodwin. Goodwin and, and Johnson created a magnificent moment there. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it was almost an accident also. Uh, the first draft of that speech had gone to another Johnson aide. And Johnson said, you gave it to a public relations guy? I wanted Goodwin <laughs> to do this. I, I wanted a Jew to write this this speech, someone who had, had experienced uh, anti-Semitism. Um, and while Goodwin was working on the speech, Johnson telephoned him and, and said, remember the story about how I, I was a teacher at that, that uh, Mexican-American school? And uh, of course, Goodwin had heard it a thousand times, and, and uh, Johnson said, I, I want that in the speech. My first job after college was as a teacher in Cotula, Texas, in a small Mexican-American school. Few of them could speak English, and I couldn't speak much Spanish. My students were poor, and they often came to class without breakfast, hungry. And they knew, even in their youth, the pain of prejudice. They never seemed to know why people disliked them. But they knew it was so, because I saw it in their eyes. I never thought 
then, in 1928, that I would be standing here in 1965. It never even occurred to me in my fondest dreams that I might have the chance to help the sons and daughters of those students and to help people like them all over this country. You say that the Voting Rights Act never would have existed without the help of two generations of courageous Republican legislators. I agree with that because I worked with many of them when I was a young man on working on policy for President Johnson. One of them was Senator Everett Dirksen of Illinois, the Wizard of Ooze, <laughs> as you remind us. Uh, they had a, a very interesting relationship. Uh, you know, very often uh, Dirksen would attack the president on, on the floor of the Senate uh, in the morning, and in the afternoon they'd be drinking bourbon and, and branch water together. I mean, the, the, the Voting Rights Act was literally written in Everett Dirksen's office with the Attorney General, the Acting Attorney General, Katzenbach there. And, and some called the bill Dirksenbach. Yeah, I remember that. Um, and, and Johnson, of course, was, was quite content to give the credit for some of this to uh, Everett Dirksen um, because he feared that the Southerners might mount a filibuster, as they had with the 1964 Civil Rights Act, long filibuster, and in order to get the votes to invoke cloture, which would stop the filibuster, you needed Republican votes. I, uh, the president sent me in 1964 to see Dirksen. He sent a lot of people up to see Dirksen. And I was 30 years old, and he was 68, 67, 68. We talked about cloture very briefly, and then I said thank you. And I got up to leave, and I got to the door, and he said in that deep voice of his, Mr. Moyers, uh, yes. What about that great American I recommended to the president who belongs by destiny on the Interstate Commerce Commission? <laughs> I said, I didn't know you'd done that. He said, you just check it out. He's a great American. And he got on the Interstate Commerce Commission. I have to tell you that. I mean, that's the way they both understood politics. Yes. Unfortunately, we don't have that today. So Justice Roberts, when he writes uh, his opinion on the recent gutting of the Voting Rights Act, says, we don't need it anymore. He said the country has changed. This is the age of Obama. We've got our first black president. And Justice Roberts even mentioned Bloody Sunday in Selma and the murder of those three young people, James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner, near Philadelphia, Mississippi. And Roberts wrote, today, both of those towns, Selma and Philadelphia, Mississippi, are governed by African-American mayors. Problems remain in those states, the justice said, but there's no denying that due to the Voting Rights Act, our nation has made great strides. We have made great strides. What's your reaction? We certainly have made great strides, but all we have to do is look at the voter suppression movement that arose from many of the covered states, incidentally, in 2011 and states, 2012. States covered by the Voting Rights Act. Correct. Voter IDs that are very difficult for uh, many African Americans and whites as well, uh, who are elderly and don't have those documents. Uh, it, it costs money to acquire these necessary documents. It's really a, a kind of poll tax now. Um, voter IDs make it more difficult for people to vote. Um, prohibiting voting on Sunday, which was so important to the African-American community. They go to church, they go to the polls, just taking your soul to the polls. Um, 
And all of those indicate a continuing need for the Voting Rights Act. What did the Supreme Court decision actually do? Well, by, by striking down Section 4, which contains the formula that allows Section 5 to cover uh, certain states in the South and nine, actually nine states uh, and, and parts of six other states, requiring them before changing any voting practice to submit those changes to a federal court in Washington, D.C. or the Justice Department to receive what is called preclearance. And the reason the Voting Rights Act singled out those states is because for decades the voting rights of black people have been denied by one technique after another, as President Johnson said in his speech. And within hours of the Supreme Court's decision, the Attorney General of Texas announced that they were going to resurrect their voting ID bill, which mm -hmm. had been disallowed uh, last year. And there's an outfit Louis Manan mentions in the New Yorker magazine. There's a white group in Beaumont, Texas, just waiting for this Supreme Court decision because they want to overthrow the black majority that runs the school board. So you're saying, I think you're saying, a lot of mischief can be done now that would have been disqualified by the voting rights provision. Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, Chief Justice Warren, when he first, uh, when the court first ruled on the constitutionality of the Voting Rights Act in 1966, said that the bill had been designed to eliminate the most egregious of difficulties, um, but it was also written to cover subtle devices. And here, I think, is an example of, of subtle and, and quite uh, harmful devices. We're still very polarized racially. Um, sometimes it's wrong just to focus on the fact that we have so many uh, African Americans in office, in, in, including uh, a president. In the oral arguments, Justice, uh, Chief Justice Roberts said, you know, well, as you're saying that Alabama is more prejudiced than Massachusetts. Um, and the evidence indicates that, yes, it, it still is. The, the majority on the court struck down the provision that requires the states to get federal approval before making changes. Is there a historical record to suggest that this decision, in no small part, was motivated by a political goal? It's hard to say. Uh, to be fair, should we accept that maybe those five justices have their own set of political principles, um, and we just don't agree with them. Um, you know, as a historian, you want to be fair. Um, but it seems to me that they are on the wrong side of history, that there was so much evidence to indicate continuing difficulties that to simply blankly say, we don't need the Voting Rights Act anymore. You know, we're in a post-racial society now. We have a black president. Uh, it is so uh, out of touch with what is happening in the country. Pardon me for suggesting that John Roberts sometimes seems less concerned with the law and the Constitution than with a political agenda. Is that unfair? No, it's not unfair. In fact, when he was a young um, member of the uh, Civil Rights Division uh, under Ronald Reagan, 
Uh, he was at that point working very hard when the Voting Rights Act came up for reauthorization in 1982 to gut it at that point. So in many ways, the court's recent decision is the fulfillment of, of uh, Judge Roberts' dream. In fact, there's a memo that John Roberts wrote back then in which he said that parts of the Voting Rights Act would, quote, provide a basis for the most intrusive interference imaginable by federal courts into state and local processes. In other words, Uncle Sam, you're meddling too much. Let's move, let's get your hands off of the state processes. You know, it certainly consisted with, with Ronald Reagan's uh, philosophy of, of you know, um, government is not the solution, it's the problem. So we just remove government from regulating corporations and banks and everything will be fine. Uh, so that was the civil rights version of, uh, of Reaganism. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote in her dissent, quote, hubris, pride, is a fit word for today's demolition of the Voting Rights Act. Was it hubris? It, it's politics and I think it's also ideological hubris because if you go back to the, the, the critical documents that supposedly protect the right to vote, um, you know, the 15th Amendment passed in 1870 uh, declares that people could not be prohibited from voting because of race, color, and condition of previous servitude, and added, the Congress shall enforce this amendment with appropriate legislation. The first line of the 1965 Voting Rights Act says, this, this is a, a bill to enforce the 15th Amendment. So this was a power given to the Congress, not to the courts. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Even though the U.S. Supreme Court doesn't seem to believe that there is a lot of racist disenfranchising going on, that doesn't mean it isn't happening. We've seen it here in Wisconsin. We're seeing it in Texas and in Florida and in North Carolina. Fortunately, the Justice Department isn't backing down. It's still suing the state of Texas over the voter ID law down there, and it may sue North Carolina for putting up ridiculous hurdles on the path to the voting booth, as Rachel Maddow has reported on MSNBC. She noted that the Republicans have even closed down the voting booths at Appalachian State. North Carolina passed its law just last month, and Republican Governor Pat McCrory's been a big proponent of it, but he got an earful on Thursday from none other than Colin Powell. They were both on stage at the same event, and just after McCrory was done speaking and Powell was introduced, the former Secretary of State said the new law sends a message to minority voters that we're really sort of punishing you. He added, we should encourage every American to vote, not make it more difficult to vote. Now, that seems like common sense and common decency, but those are two qualities in short supply 
in the Republican Party today. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Common sense make me want to be a better sense make it easier to understand who I am The North Carolina legislature has recently just passed what could be the worst voter suppression bill in the history of America. Uh, it does a lot of stuff. I apologize for how many of these are, but I want you to understand the scope of this law. So here's what it does. It implements a strict voter ID requirement, eliminates same-day voter registration, cuts early voting by a full week, raises the maximum co uh, campaign contribution to $5,000, makes it easier for voter suppression groups like True the Vote to challenge um, whoever they want, vastly increases the number of poll observers, those are not good things, only permitting citizens to vote in their specific precinct, bars young adults from pre-registering as 16 or 17-year-olds, repeals a state directive that high schools conduct voter registration drives, prohibits some Jesus. types of paid voter registration drives, dismantles three state public financing programs, weakens disclosure requirements for outside spending groups, and prevents counties from extending polling hours, and in addition stops them from setting up satellite polling locations like in nursing homes for elderly people who can't leave to go vote. So basically everything you could imagine they've crammed into one awful bill that they just passed and there is a Republican governor so we expect that it will be signed. The, uh, it's, uh, I don't want to mitigate the Supreme Court's ruling on, defense, on the Defense of Marriage Act. It was a great ruling. But that day, mm -hmm. that week of rulings, it was a giant liberty loss. All things considered, you mm -hmm. know, some of it, you get, it's like you took a little step forward, maybe even a big step forward, but like a giant step back because the, the Supreme Court's decision uh, overturning parts of the Voting Rights Act, which meant that states with a history of segregation like North Carolina, they had to clear stuff with the Justice Department. Now they don't. This is what you're going to get. Yeah. You think that the other states aren't going to follow suit? Like that, instantly. they already are. Right. right now, some of the states didn't matter. Democrats didn't win at least presidential elections there anyway. But North Carolina changing, and of course, Barack Obama won it actually in 2008, and it was competitive in 2012. So the, the great irony there is that they are proving the Supreme Court wrong. The Supreme Court said, "Oh, we got past all the racial stuff, so it's okay that states like North Carolina don't have to pre-clear it with the Justice Department because they're not going to make it pass any racial laws anyway." And here is a case here. Let me give you some stats here on uh, uh, 613,000 people, a third of whom are black and half of whom are registered Democrats lack photo ID in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. So this is clearly targeting Democratic voters and specifically black voters in terms of because it is a disproportionate effect on them. Yeah. Uh, but the Supreme Court said it's okay they can do that because they would never do that except they did it almost immediately after your decision. Explain this part to me. This is one of the, my, the, so they make it easier for voter suppression groups like True the Vote to challenge any voter who may be ineligible by uh, by requiring that challengers simply be registered in the same county or precinct, yeah. right? So that all you, uh, rather than precinct, so all you have to be in the same county. So they're literally encouraging people to go. No, I don't want your vote to count. So that gets challenged. But by the same token, they removed only permitting citizens to vote in their specific district. So you can only vote in your precinct, but you, you can, can challenge, challenge black people everywhere. 
I mean, it's it directly, one thing they passed is directly in conflict with the other, or at least from a logical point of view, because anything, anything, all they want to do is have fewer people vote. Absolutely. And, you know, during the last election, when you had Republicans propose these types of, you know, voter suppression laws, you know, there would be people arguing that, no, 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 they just want to assure that there isn't any fraud. By the way, there was a lot of uh, data released indicating that there wasn't really fraud anyway. It was a non-issue that they were trying to make a big deal about. Um, but... Now there's actual proof because when you really look into the nitty gritty, had we have allowed them to do what they wanted to do during that election, it would open the floodgates. Unfortunately, we've already opened the floodgates with that Supreme Court ruling. Um, and they wanted more. They didn't want to just make sure someone had an ID. They wanted to make sure it would be as difficult as possible for minorities, for old people or elderly people, I should say, and, and college students to vote because they're going to vote for Democrats. Yeah. So that's exactly right. Because you can say, even in a Republican mind, you can convince them, hey, look, there's voter fraud. That's why we need to check the photo ID. Otherwise, how do we know it's the person, right? But you can't justify cutting early voting by a full week. 56%, by the way, North Carolina voted early. So, so let's cut that in half, possibly. There's no, like, people who do fraud don't necessarily vote early. There's no... In fact, if nobody they did, even claims if they that. Did, you'd have more time to check it. Right. Yeah, that's right. You can catch them easy, right? And like the same day registration and stuff like that. No, and to Anna's this? point, yeah, go uh, ahead. What about repealing a state directive that high schools conduct voter registration drives in order to boost turnout among young voters? Exactly right. You know, it's an indisputable point because younger people, as Anna pointed out, are more likely to vote Democratic. So they're like, we don't want to register their votes because they're going to vote Democrat. Yeah. So black people are more likely to vote Democratic. So we don't want them to vote, right? right? It was and a people same thing and I love that uh, I love that they wanted to be comprehensive enough to also include uh, an, a maximum campaign contribution of five thousand yeah. dollars they increased the and getting campaign rid of the public financing but at, exactly even more so than that is the second to last thing weakening disclosure requirements for outside spending groups I mean yeah. they just they, they want as much little money to come in from 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 Carl Rove as conceivably possible to keep restricting voting. Uh, so, so that when you put it all together what this says is we want less voter influence, mm -hmm. we want more donor influence. Right. Yeah, that's right. It's and, and, they're bra and they're brazen about it. They didn't put it in two different bills. Yeah. They didn't bother trying to hide it. They're saying in this one giant bill, this isn't about voter fraud. This is about we want as little people as possible to vote because we think more voters means Democrats have a better chance of winning. And we want as much money as possible to flood into politics because Republicans are better at taking donor money and yeah. selling out to them and doing whatever their interest demands. So get rid of the voters, give us more donors. Jay, this is Allie from Iowa, uh, just calling in regard to the last episode. Um, I could seriously go on about the subject for hours, but the main point that I would like to get across is I'm in agreement with Sam Cedar. I do really think that women are looked at as sinners. We've been kind of fed the same old story generation after generation that sex is only okay if it's used for procreation, uh, for enjoyment, especially if you're a woman is sinful and dirty. I think we really need to have a different conversation, um, especially with our own children, about the real and true function of sex. 
The primary function of sex is not for procreation. It's for bonding, sharing, socializing, communicating, and connecting intimately with another human being. Procreation is a secondary function. Sex is a great, natural, enjoyable part of life. Of course, we want our children to be safe and responsible. We as parents need to teach them that. We need to teach them how to be safe and responsible. I think it starts with us. We as parents need to step up and teach our future generations that it's okay to have guilt-free, enjoyable sex. It's okay to postpone pregnancy with birth control, and it's okay to not want to be pregnant if you're not ready. Just my thoughts on the subject. Absolutely love the show. Thanks. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Erin from Philadelphia. I wanted to call. Uh, I've been catching up on some episodes lately, and I want to thank you for highlighting LGBTQ rights as often as possible. And I wanted to comment specifically on a segment that was played from the Rachel Maddow show about how the Prop 8 folks, now that they've lost in the U.S., are taking their show on the road to Russia. They're not just taking their show abroad. I wanted to highlight a story that hasn't gotten a lot of media attention yet, although we are working on it. One of the groups that was involved in Prop 8 in California, a group that calls themselves the Pacific Justice Institute, have decided that who they really need to target now are transgender children, and specifically the rights of trans kids uh, with regards to schools. This bill in California, I believe it's AB 1266, recently passed, that would provide basic protections to trans students, for example, Students who have transitioned would be able to use the appropriate facilities uh, to their gender, locker rooms, restrooms, and so forth. And this group has decided to look beyond their borders to Colorado, and they've found a young woman there to target for all kinds of harassment online, just outright lying about her, about her situation, about the school, and you know, saying that She's been sexually harassing people. The school have already come out and said they've had no such reports. Um, the town itself is being very supportive, but needless to say, she's getting a lot of really negative attention from the right-wing media uh, online and so forth. So I wanted to put out just that little bit of information. She's being referred to as Jane Doe these days, at least in the left media, uh, for obvious reasons, to protect her safety, her identity. but. You know, she's really going through a hard time based on what people who have been able to talk to her and her family have said that, you know, she's, she's become suicidal over this, um, which is not a huge surprise, unfortunately. Um, and the rate of suicide in LGBT teens is really high, and, um, you know, obviously this sort of attention doesn't help. So I wanted to highlight that story. It's been a lot in the trans media. It's also starting to filter up to places like Think Progress. And I also wanted to put out a small activist call to action regarding this situation. You can go to transadvocate, T-R-A-N-S-A-D-V-O-C-A-T-E dot com. You can read about this whole story, and there are ways to get involved. Really just support. They're trying to help get a legal fund together for this girl and her family to help fight you know, the issues that this PGI group is calling the, uh, causing them. And uh, if you, you know, don't want to donate money, there's also uh, ways that you can contact the family with messages of support. Hearing from people all over the country in support of Jane would really, really be helpful to her. I, I say this as a trans person myself, knowing that people are out there and that they're on their side can make all the difference in the world. Thanks, Jay. Keep it up. And I look forward to the next show.
Hey Jay, it's Chris from Colorado Springs. Hey, I just wanted to call to respond from, to Nathan from Vancouver about his comment about the, the TMO discussion. And um, although he said some things that I do agree with, I have to completely disagree with the idea that I can't vote with my dollars because they're too small. Hi Jay, this is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington. I don't want to make my political decisions at the grocery store. The food that I need to eat for my family at the grocery store. The best way for me to be active politically is to vote and to be active politically. This, you know, vote with your dollars thing doesn't work. We don't have enough money. The 1%'s got it all. I know that my family and mine's decisions about where we spend our money might not make a drastic impact, but I think it is extremely important. Things like I don't shop at Walmart. I don't buy guns. I don't drive gas guzzlers. I, I make political decisions all the time based on my little individual behavior. And I think it's the attitude of, well, what, what can I do? I'm just one person. I can't make any change. That kind of thing spreads. I, I know that there's a couple of friends and family members of ours that no longer shop at Walmart either. My wife and I made a decision last year that we would just stop doing it. And, and we have stopped. And we have found ways with our budget to, to shop elsewhere locally where that way we don't have to support a, an institution like that. And I think that that's a really bad attitude to have. We, If we're waiting for our politicians to do something, and if we really think that, I don't want to say our vote doesn't matter, but that just voting is enough to, and I know he mentioned political activism as well, but this stuff can be done at the ground level too, you know. So I think that voting with my dollars, even though they are not very substantial, and making political decisions with the individual actions that I do every single day, how I treat other people and how I try to influence and, and set an example for people around me, I think that's extremely important. And I, I think minimizing that is what the power structure wants us to do, that, you know, everyone else is doing it, so don't worry about it. You can't really make the changes anyway, so it's, yeah, it's not a great situation, but we just put up with it because that's how it is. And I just refuse to, in general, to, to, to think that way. Maybe I have ideas of grandeur about the importance of the little decisions that I make, but, you know, I feel good about the decisions that I make, uh, that I'm doing them for the right reasons and they're not hurting anybody. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, thanks for what you do, Jay. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Uh, just a quick follow-up, I just want to mention that uh, transadvocate.com, mentioned by the second voicemailer uh, of the day, is going to be in the show notes, so if you didn't hear it or whatever, it'll be uh, on the website and also in the show notes on your actual device that you're listening to the show on. Uh, sort of related to that, I wanted to mention that a, a listener wrote in and wanted me to pr promote the uh, there's a boycott going on of the movie that's coming out in theaters uh, in real quick, maybe you know, in a week or whatever, uh, Ender's Game. And so the basic idea is that the writer of the original story that Ender's Game is based on is like a really outspoken anti-LGBTQ community person and you know and so if he has financial tied to this movie and the better the movie does the better he does better to just not give him any of your money so there's uh details on on the campaign at skipendersgame.com and and the the call the um 
the listener who wrote in was very sort of understanding and added this point. Uh, if listeners really cannot pass on the movie, perhaps they could donate an amount equal to the cost of their movie ticket to a local LGBT community center. So how you can't ask for uh, someone more reasonable than that. Let's see. Thirdly, I, uh, I want to touch on Chris from Colorado Springs voting with our actions uh, and, you know, and dollars. I couldn't agree more basically with everything he said. I, I definitely had the same thoughts as uh, yeah, as Nathan from Vancouver was talking in the previous episode about, you know, we can't vote with our dollars because we don't have enough. Like, yeah, I mean, we, we can't solve climate change just by uh, not driving either, but it's one piece of the puzzle and you have to use all of the pieces at your disposal to actually make change. So voting with our dollars and our actions is just one piece. Then you also have to vote. Then you also have to be politically involved. Then we also have to get money out of politics and so on and so on. And, you know, we, we really have to do everything. And so the idea of poo-pooing any one action that, that people want to take is, uh, you know, is really sort of destructive and like just bad for the whole movement in, in general. And uh, th these are just rapid fire today, apparently. Uh, finally, I just want to mention sort of the, the racial component of voter suppression. Uh, just in case there was any confusion, I, I want to put out, you know, my, my thoughts on the issue. I think that very few conservatives think just flat out black people shouldn't be able to vote. <laughs> I think that should probably be obvious. But the fact, and you know, and, and the fact that voter suppression uh, adversely affects uh, people of color disproportionately, I think is is somewhat incidental to their color. You know, I, I think that if black people voted for uh, Republicans, then Republicans would have no desire to disenfranchise black people based on their race. So I think it's a little bit incidental. But the fact that voter suppression adversely affects people of color uh, disproportionately and conservatives tend to not have a problem with voter suppression having this adverse effect. Now, that does have a direct relationship with the general sense of racism in the country that because, you know, there are people not like me, they're an other, they're a group that I'm not affiliated with. If bad things happen to them, it it's not affecting me, so I don't mind as much. Uh, you know, that's where the racial component really comes home is that, you know, when, when you make the argument, Hey, like all these people are being disenfranchised and like, don't you see how wrong it is? And, and they just don't care. They don't seem to react to that in any substantive way. And it's because it just doesn't affect them and they can kind of let it go. And, and that's where I think the, uh, you know, not even overt racism, just the sort of like underlying base level racism that, Almost all people have, but some do a better job than others of overcoming. Uh, you know, the conservatives, I, I think, was maybe it was Bill Maher who said, uh, you know, not all Republicans are overt racists, but all overt racists are Republicans. It just, it just tends in that direction. The old way of thinking in America is this, you know, very race based uh, way of thinking. And the conservatives are the ones who kind of their thinking is a, a little bit in the past.
And that's how those things end up aligning. Uh, those are my thoughts. Uh, call in, leave a message yourself. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is, that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash best of the left. If you don't know what that means, go to that website uh, or click through on the banner at my website. And it's sort of explained there in detail. It's a really easy and powerful way to support the show. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can be found on the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past our own sad stories And